Part 2, Chapter 13 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. Chapter 13, End of the War, Return Home. July to August, 1856. I love the people, but do not like to stage me to their eyes. Though it do well, I do not relish well their loud applause and aves vehement. Shakespeare. Peace was signed at Paris on March 30th, 1856, but there was still work to be done in the Crimean hospitals, and Miss Nightingale remained at Balaclava, as we have seen, till the beginning of July. On her return to Scutari, she was occupied in winding up the affairs of her mission. Meanwhile, the nurses were already beginning to go home. The Reverend Mother Moore, who had come out from Bermondsey with the first party, left the East at the end of April. She had been throughout one of the mainstays of Miss Nightingale, who wrote to her thus from Balaclava, April 29th. God's blessing and my love and gratitude with you, as you well know. You know well, too, that I shall do everything I can for the sisters whom you have left me, but it will not be like you. Your wishes will be our law, and I shall try and remain in the Crimea for their sakes as long as we are any of us there. I do not presume to express praise or gratitude to you, Reverend Mother, because it would look as if I thought you had done the work not unto God but unto me. You were far above me in fitness for the general superintendency, both in worldly talent of administration and far more in the spiritual qualifications which God values in a superior. My being placed over you in an unenviable reign in the East was my misfortune and not my fault. Another of those whom Miss Nightingale described as her mainstays was Mrs. Shaw Stewart, who served in the Crimea as superintendent of the nurses, successively in the General and in the Castle Hospital, and of her Miss Nightingale wrote in terms of similarly grateful fervor, I quote a few of these appreciations, and many more might be added, because it has been supposed, on the strength of isolated expressions, penned in moments of vexation or despondency, that Miss Nightingale was ungenerous in recognition of the work of others. Nothing could be further from the fact. She was, it is true, unsparing in blame wherever she saw, or thought she saw, incompetence or unfaithfulness, or a lack of single-mindedness. She was also impatient of opposition, and hers was not one of those soft natures which readily forget and forgive. But wherever efficiency and faithful zeal were to be found, she was quick to recognize them, and she was as unstinted in praise as in blame. Of Mrs. Shaw Stewart she wrote to Lady Cransworth, who had succeeded Lady Canning in good offices toward nurses. Without her, our Crimean work would have come to grief. Without her judgment, her devotion, her unselfish, consistent looking to the one great end, the great carrying out the work as a whole. Without her untiring zeal, her watchful care of the nurses, her accuracy in all trusts and accounts, her truth, her faithfulness, her praise and her reward are in higher hands than mine. Of the same noble, brave lady, Miss Nightingale had written to Mrs. Bracebridge, November 4th, 1855. Faithfulness is so eminently her that I hear her master saying, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. I could multiply Miss Nightingale's praises of her fellow workers, 
for of every one of them she sent home to Lady Cranworth a terse character sketch. This was done mainly for the sake of the professional nurses, in order that they might be helped to find suitable situations on their return. The sketches show how close a touch the lady-in-chief kept upon her staff, and they reveal no reluctance either to criticize or to praise. It would be invidious to particularize further than to cite Miss Nightingale's appreciation of her third mainstay, Mrs. Roberts, who came out as a paid nurse with her in October 1854, and served throughout the war. Having been twenty-three years sister in St. Thomas's Hospital, her qualifications as a nurse were, of course, infinitely superior to any other of those with me. She is indeed a surgical nurse of the first order. Her valuable services have been recognized even, and most of all, by the surgeons of Scutari, where she has principally been, and where, after Inkerman, her exertions were unremitting. Her total superiority to all the vices of a hospital nurse, her faithfulness to the work, her disinterested love of duty and vigilant care of her patients, her power of work equal to that of ten, have made her one of the most important persons of the expedition. 2. On June 3rd, the Secretary of State wrote to Miss Nightingale, As the period is now fast approaching when your generous and disinterested labors will cease, with the occasion which called them forth, to inquire what arrangements should be made for her return. In thus contemplating, he continued, the close of those anxious and trying duties which you imposed upon yourself solely with a view to alleviate the sufferings of Her Majesty's army in the East, and which you have accomplished with a singleness of purpose beyond all praise, it is not necessary for me to inform you how highly Her Majesty appreciates the services you have rendered to her army. As Her Majesty has already conveyed to you, a signal proof of her gracious approbation. But I desire now, on behalf of my colleagues and myself, to offer you our most cordial thanks for your humane and generous exertions. In doing so, I feel confident that I simply express the unanimous feelings of the people of this country. There were things which Miss Nightingale valued more highly than the approbation of the people. One of them was correctly surmised by Sir Henry Storks, Writing to her from headquarters at Scutari on July 25th, he said, I have received your kind note with mingled feelings of extreme pleasure and regret, the former because I appreciate your good opinion very highly, the latter because your note is a farewell. It will ever be to me a source of pride and gratification to have been associated with you in the work which you have performed with so much devotion and with so much courage. Amidst the acknowledgments you have received from all classes and from many quarters, I feel persuaded there are none more pleasing to yourself than the grateful recognition of the poor men you came to succor and to save. You will ever live in their remembrance, be assured of that, for amongst the faults and vices which ignorance has produced, and a bad system has fostered and matured, ingratitude is not one of the defects of the British soldier." I indulge the hope that you will permit me hereafter to continue an acquaintance, may I say friendship, which I highly value and appreciate. The gratitude of the British soldier was very dear to Miss Nightingale, and the disposition which she ultimately made of her Crimean decorations was characteristic. Before she left the East, the Sultan had presented her with a diamond bracelet and a sum of money for the nurses and hospitals, both of which presents the Queen permitted her to accept. The bracelet, with the badge given by the Queen, may be seen today in the Museum of the United Service Institution, placed there in accordance with her desire that they should be deposited where the soldiers could see them. 
At length it was time for Miss Nightingale, having seen off the last of her nurses, and filed the last of her inventories and accounts, to leave also. The government had offered her a British man-of-war for the voyage home. The view she was likely to take of such a proposal had been correctly surmised in the House of Lords some weeks before. On May 5th, Lord Ellesmere moved the address on the conclusion of peace. He was something of a poet as well as a statesman, and this was his last appearance in the House. In a speech which was much admired at the time, and which may still be read with pleasure as a specimen of the more ornate kind of parliamentary eloquence, he paid a tribute to the memory of Lord Raglan, and then passed by a happy transition to the heroine of the war. My lords, the agony of that time has become matter of history. The vegetation of two successive springs has obscured the vestiges of Balaclava and Inkerman. Strong voices now answer to the roll call, and sturdy forms now cluster round the colours. The ranks are full, the hospitals are empty, the angel of mercy still lingers to the last on the scene of her labours, but her mission is all but accomplished. Those long arcades of Scutari, in which dying men sat up to catch the sound of her footstep or the flutter of her dress, and fell back content to have seen her shadow as it passed, are now comparatively deserted. She may probably be thinking how to escape, as best she may on her return, the demonstrations of a nation's appreciation of the deeds and motives of Florence Nightingale. 3. The offer of the man-of-war was declined, and Miss Nightingale, with her aunt, sailed the Danube for Athens, Messina, and Marseille. A queen's messenger was in attendance to help the travellers with passports. They stayed a night in a humble hotel in Paris, August 4th, and travelling thence as Miss Smith, she reached London the next day. The return of Florence Nightingale is on everyone's lips, said a letter of the time, and all the newspaper world was alert to discover her movements. Weary and worn as she is, wrote her aunt, I cannot tell you the dread she has of the receptions with which she is threatened. It became known that on her arrival in England she would proceed at once to her country home. Triumphal arches, addresses from mayors and corporations, and a carriage drawn by her neighbors were at once suggested, but Miss Nightingale had prudently withheld information of her timetable, even from her family, and the public reception was avoided. It had been proposed, too, that the reception should be military. The whole regiments of the Coldstreams, the Grenadiers, and the Fusiliers would like to come, but as that was impossible, they desired to send down their three bands to meet her at the station and play her home, whenever she might arrive, whether by day or by night, if only they could find out when. But the attention even of her soldiers was eluded. She lay lost for a night in London, and at eight o'clock next morning she presented herself according to a promise given by the Bermondsey nuns, at their convent door. It was the first day of their annual retreat, and she rested with them for a few hours. Then, taking the train, she reached her home on August 7th, 1856, after nearly two years' absence in the East, arriving at an unexpected hour, having walked up from the little country station. A little tinkle of the small church bell on the hills and a thanksgiving prayer at the little chapel next day were, wrote her sister, all the innocent greeting. Florence's spoils of war, as Lady Verney wrote to Mrs. Gaskell, arrived in advance and were characteristic. There was, first, William, a one-legged sailor boy who was ten months in her hospitals. Occupation was found for him. Next, there was Peter, a little Russian prisoner who came into hospital and of whom, as he was an orphan, she took charge. 
One of the lady nurses was his theological instructor, and asked him where he would go when he died if he were a good boy. He answered, To Miss Nightingale. Thirdly, there was a big Crimean puppy given her by the soldiers. He was found in a hole in the rocks near Balaclava, and was called Roche, which is supposed to be soldier in Russian. A little Russian cat, a similar gift, died on the road, but the three remaining are the happiest things I have seen for some time, careering about in the intervals of a school where they are made much of, and glory is more agreeable to them than to their mistress. But Florence had another Crimean spoil, unknown, perhaps, to her sister, which she accounted one of the most sacred of her possessions. It was a bunch of grass, which she had picked out of the ground watered by our men's blood at Inkerman. 4. If I ever live to see England again, she had written in November 1855, the western breezes of my hilltop home will be my first longing, though Olympus with its snowy cap looks fair over our blue eastern sea. It was to Lee Hurst then that she went on her return. It was there ten years before that she had found a fortnight's happiness in the humble work of parish nursing and visiting, and had thought to herself that with the continuation of such life she would be content. The aspirations of her youth were to receive, as this second part of the volume has shown, a larger, a fuller, and more conspicuous attainment. Yet it would be a mistake to regard Miss Nightingale's mission in the Crimean War either as the summit of her attainment or the fulfillment of her life. Rather, it was a starting point. Her work in the East did, it is true, attain some great ends and satisfy in some measure the aspiration of her mind and heart. She has done a great deed, wrote a friend in December 1854, not less than that of those who have stood at Inkerman or advanced at the Alma, and she has made the first move towards wiping away a reproach from this country that our women could not do what others do, irreproachably and with advantage to their fellow creatures. She had proved that there was room for nurses in British military hospitals. She had shown the way to a new and high calling for women, what Florence has done, wrote Lady Verney to a friend, April 1856, towards raising the standard of women's capabilities and work is most important. It is quite curious every day how questions arise regarding them which are answered quite differently, even when she is not alluded to, from what they would have been 18 months ago. Lord Stanley, in the speech at Manchester already mentioned, had made the same point. Mark, he said, what, by breaking through customs and prejudices, Miss Nightingale has effected for her sex. She has opened to them a new profession, a new sphere of usefulness. I do not suppose that in undertaking her mission she thought much of the effect which it might have on the social position of women, yet probably no one of those who made that question a special study has done half as much as she towards its settlement. A claim for more extended freedom of action, based on proved public usefulness in the highest sense of the word, with the whole nation to look on and bear witness, is one which must be listened to and cannot be easily refused. Lord Stanley was mistaken in supposing that Miss Nightingale thought little of the effect of her mission upon the position of women, for though she had misgivings about women's missionaries, yet to make a better life for women was an object very near her heart. When she was in the Crimea, working as hard as any of the men, confronting disease and death with the bravest of them, administering, reforming, counseling as energetically as the best of them, this resolute woman felt that she and her companions had raised their sex to the height of a great occasion. 
War, she wrote to her friend Mr. Bracebridge, November 4th, 1855, makes Deborahs and Absaloms and Achitophels, and when, if ever the Magnificat had been true, has it been more true than now every word of it. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour, for he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. The words which had often been in her mouth in moments of despondency and torted yearning came to her with the sense of happy fulfillment when she had been able to act as the handmaiden of God in the service of the sick and wounded soldiers. Her sister, understanding her better in the years of attainment than in those of aspiration, wrote to her, November fifteenth, 1855, "'What anxious work you have upon you, my great heart, and yet in spite of it all have you not found your true home, the home of your spirit?' All this was true, yet Miss Nightingale's Crimean mission was, in the scheme of her life as she had planned it, and in the facts of her life so far as failing health permitted, not so much a climax as an episode. It was an episode remarkable in itself, and it had given her a worldwide reputation, but in reputation she saw nothing except an opportunity for further work. The abilities which she has displayed, said Mr. Sidney Herbert in Willis's rooms, cannot be allowed to slumber. So long as she lives, her labors are marked out for her. The diamond has shown itself, and it must not be allowed to return to the mine. Her friend well knew that he was only expressing the feelings of her own mind. What she sought on her return to England was to utilize her reputation and her experience for the furtherance of her ideals. Her experiences during the Crimean War had enlarged the scope of her work. She had gained an insight into military administration and had shown a grasp of the subject, which had caused the Queen and Prince to wish we had her at the War Office. Her first duty, then, was to use her experience, so far as opportunity offered, to improve the medical administration of the army. But the main desire of her life had been to raise nursing to the rank of a trained calling. Her mission to the East had not accomplished this object. It had only advertised it, and for the rest had shown how urgently the thing needed to be done. The world praised her achievement. She was rather conscious of its shortcoming, and of the obstacles and difficulties with which it had been attended. She came back from the East more resolved than ever to be a pioneer in the reform of nursing. But first she needed rest and seclusion. Rest in which to recuperate from the long strain of labors, hardships, and anxieties. Seclusion in which to hide herself from publicity and applause. The world praised her self-sacrifice. She felt that she had made none. Rather, that she had been privileged to attain that harmony between the soul of a human being and its appointed work, in which, according to her philosophy, lay the union of man with the divine spirit. She shrank from glory in dread of vainglory. Paid by the world, what dost thou owe me? God might question. I believe, she had written to her father in 1854, shortly before her call to the Crimea came, that there is, within and without human nature, a revelation of eternal existence, eternal progress for human nature. At the same time, I believe that to do that part of this world's work which harmonizes, accords with the idiosyncrasy of each of us, is the means by which we may at once render this world the habitation of the divine spirit in man, and prepare for other such work in other of the worlds which surround us. The kingdom of heaven is within us. Those words seem to me the most of a revelation, of a New Testament, of a gospel, of any that are recorded to have been spoken by our Saviour. Her period of rest was to be very short, as we shall learn. 
but let us leave her communing silently in her chamber with such thoughts till another part opens a new chapter of activity in her life. End of End of the War, Return Home, 